Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year with a look at what was happening in the dance clubs, Electro, Freestyle, High Energy, Madonna and Jellybean, and the beginnings of House. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming back once again the Freebird Yeller himself, Ed Legg, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. This chapter focuses on the New Music Seminar in New York City, August 6th through 8th, 1984. But really, this is the dance music chapter. Ed, were you hitting the clubs in 84? You know what? The only time I ever walked into disco was the last week of uh, 1983 in Dallas, Texas. And the middle of July, early July 1984 in Tampa. And it was the same disco. It was called Confetti's. So the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fact that you're calling it a disco when it was dance music. You're right. And it wasn't. You're exactly right. And you know what? It was rock. It was rock. It was what this chapter talks about because they, it was playing rock songs like uh, I Want a New Drug, um, a song by that band Survivor that did I Have a Tiger, but not that song. And um, there's something else. I mean, it did Billie Jean, of course. Um, there was something, uh, something else that I'm gapping on, but they were rock songs. And to this beat and it talks about it in this chapter how they produced Indeed. and started gauging it like that yep they were remixing they were remixing uh for um remix of rock songs for the dance clubs so it was all coming yes. together matos has a great quote that i just gotta read he says if pop radio in 1984 was enacting a fantasy of racial sexual and social integration that seemed to be running in the opposite direction of Reagan's increasingly separatist early 80s. It was only catching up with the clubs. And that's the moral of this chapter, that the clubs were really putting music and cultures into a blender. All kinds of things were going on. I feel like historically, like looking back from the perspective of 2023, this is one of the most important chapters in the book as far as influence on future things. But it's interesting because there was so much going on. There's a blend of, like you say, rock or dance-oriented rock songs. Like Owner of a Lonely Heart was number two 
that yeah, yep, that's the other uh, song that was yeah, planned. I don't know how I forgot that. <laughs> and we've already talked about that because Trevor Horn produced that. He also produced um, Trevor Horn and the Buggles' video, Kill the Radio Star, and once an alumni of Yes, but he'd already quit Yes by this point. But he was also producing Frankie Goes to Hollywood that year. We talked about that, I think, in the first chapter of the book. But this this time, um, Matos points out that Cashbox had, had debuted their 12-inch charts. And for those who don't remember the vinyl era, a 12-inch, there were two kinds of 12 inches. There was the long player, which was you had a whole album on a 12-inch uh, piece of vinyl, or you had what they called a 12-inch, which was a 12-inch single. And that was just one song stretched out over the whole foot of vinyl, and you got much bigger bass response. And we talked in the Techno Roll series how that was kind of an accidental discovery because one of the first disco remixers was looking for seven inches to, to print up some dance records. They didn't have any, so they printed them up on 12-inch vinyl, and the rest is history. Once he heard the bass response on a 12-inch single, he was like, this is what I want. And that became the standard. So by, by 1984, 12-inch singles are definitely the industry standard for dance music. And it's interesting <clears throat> that the charts that week, that Owner of a Lonely Heart was at number two. Run DMC's Hard Times, which is the, their second single, was number three. And it's interesting. And, and I think that has more to do with marketing. I don't see run dmc as dance club staples but they were they were selling on 12 inches you know for that bass response and number one was shannon's let the music play and this is a really important song because it's right where electro which we've talked about on many episodes of techno roll and and we talked about um in this sequence in this series on the hip-hop chapter but africa bambata's planet rock co-produced with Arthur Baker, starts a genre, a subgenre called electro, which is, uh, I guess, hip-hop's first subgenre. And Shannon is where hip-hop or electro turns into freestyle. That a, a, a bunch, once, it's, once it becomes song-oriented, especially with Latina singers, it becomes what's known as freestyle or Latin freestyle. That's a dominant style. And our own Steph Haynes, wants to tell us about Shannon's Let the Music Play. Steph, share some of the insights. Well, when this song came out, I was a kid. I was about 12 or 13. So the first place I heard it was on the radio. It was big at school dances. But what was awesome about this song is it had a lot of staying power. Because a few years later, I want to say I was 16, I got my first fake ID. I, I grew up in another time. So, you know, you grow up in Brooklyn, you get fake IDs when you're a teenager. Uh, it's not to drink, it's to go dance in the clubs. And that's what I did. I would go with my older cousins to the clubs. And one of the first things you could always count on playing three, four years after this thing was released was Shannon's Let the Music Play. And it would get the biggest pop. That song would come on if there was no one on the dance floor, that song came on, everybody was on the dance floor. It stayed in the, the, the charts, I don't know how long, but I mean, it to this day, like I was telling, telling you before the show, 
on Valentine's Day, I took my husband to a strip club because we do weird things like that. And uh, it's also our anniversary um, on Valentine's Day. So it was for me, too. I like to look at the ladies, too. So anyways, we get out, uh, we go out there. And the first, song, the first song that's played is Shannon. Let the music play. That's the very first thing I heard on Valentine's Day when we walked into the club. That's a classic. Forty years later, they're still playing it in the strip clubs. That that tells you <laughs> well, what we're dealing with That would be forty years here. later in the strip clubs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't remind me. Don't remind me. But there's a lot of other trends going on, um, and, and uh, another sound is what uh, Matos calls the big new club sound of 1984, which is high energy. Again, we did a whole techno roll episode on this in the first uh, techno roll series. And this is a style that Mato says pointed straight back to disco. And then it was really an update on the synthesizer-driven sound of Patrick Cowley's productions for Sylvester. Now, Patrick Cowley was this genius uh, record producer out of San Francisco who worked with Sylvester from 78 until 1982 when he tragically was one of the early victims of AIDS. He was a victim of AIDS before they even had a word for it. Um, they diagnosed him with cancer at the time. And so Patrick Cowley is one of these undersung geniuses who was massively influential. And around this time, a number of uh, other producers are picking up on what he had laid down in the late 70s and early 80s. And so you've got songs like Evelyn Thomas's High Energy, and then you've got Saw, aka Stock Aitken Waterman, who start out with You Think You're a Man by Divine. But now Steph reminds me, and I should have done this before, before I said, I'm going to blame Steph. She should have made me do this before I started talking about high energy. But let's go ahead and hear Shannon's Let the Music Play, produced and written by Chris Barbosa. That was Let the Music Play by Shannon, produced and arranged by Chris Barbosa. That's the classic moment when electro becomes freestyle. And for corn dogs like myself, who didn't even know what freestyle was until, say, two years ago, this is what freestyle is. It's basically electro with a Latina singing. Not necessarily only Latinas, but that's the general concept. But as I was saying before Steph made me cue, High Energy was the big new club sound of 1984. It mainly dominated in white gay discos. It wasn't a sound that you heard in a lot of black clubs. It wasn't, it definitely wasn't a sound you heard in a lot of mainstream clubs, but <clears throat> very popular uh, sound at the time. As people like Evelyn Thomas come along with High Energy and Divine, of all people, comes out with a hit, You Think You're a Man, which is produced by Stock. Aitken and Waterman, a.k.a. Saw. And these guys are going to go on to produce uh, Kylie Minogue and Mandy Smith and totally dominate the late 80s British pop scene. And it's also kind of fascinated me because they, that kind of music, high energy based music, 
is the dominant pop music form in the late 80s in England when Acid House comes along and revolutionizes as the underground sound and then soon the new popular sound. And for the longest time, I had a hard time telling the difference between, like, what is the difference between high energy and house music? Well, this is the difference. If it sounds like... Uh, you think you're a man by divine, it's high energy. If it sounds like uh, any number of house songs, then it's house. That's a terrible explanation. (laughs) (laughs) But my basic rule of thumb is if it's got expensive, high-money synthesizers and a really compressed, clean sound, it's probably high energy and it's probably Stockake and Waterman. And if it's got a rawer, cheaper sound, it's probably produced by somebody like um, Jesse Saunders uh, in their bedroom in Chicago and his house. So that much more raw, uh, more simplistic sound is going to be house, whereas the elaborate, expensive synthesizers, because in the early 80s, the only kind of synthesizers were super expensive. But they go on to immediately produce uh, You Spin Me Round Like a Record by Dead or Alive, which goes number one in the UK in March 1985. And they get, Saw goes on a run, end up producing like 13 UK number ones and selling 35 million records. So it's a, a, a massively successful formula. And Saw clearly, I mean, by the time it's Kylie Minogue, it's well removed from the gay discos that it started in. But nonetheless, in 1984, it's still rooted in the gay discos. And then he gets into a discussion of Bronski Beat, whose album Age of Consent comes out uh, to quite a bit of critical acclaim. I can remember reading about this record. I, I wasn't hip enough to be dancing to it in clubs, but it was a very openly gay record. And, and Matos quotes uh, a radio tip sheet, which he doesn't name. And so I'm very curious which radio tip sheet was was ripping Bronski beat, like kind of backhanded compliment. They're praising the beats and the songwriting, and they're totally condemning the subject matter, which is about being a, a gay teenager in a small town. So that was kind of interesting. But as we know, Ed, how homophobic were things in 1984? It's it's one of the reasons my friend Joel was the only person I knew who, who went to probably one of the more famous um, – a, a very similar club to a four level club in Atlanta called Backstreet that was open 24 hours a day. They served booze 24 hours a day. And my buddy went with a couple of gorgeous heterosexual women who liked to dance without getting hit on. And once he got used to it, he didn't mind being hit on. He just hung around with them. <laughs> Yeah, I was doing that kind of stuff later on. Once I discovered that I could get horny dudes to buy me free drinks, and and that the clubs <laughs> were really carded, um, you know, I would I, I I would I would pop into there was a gay club right next to the punk club, and we would pop in, get drinks, and then be total homophobic a holes ourselves, and you know, I'd not even say thanks for the drinks. <laughs> And run out. But anyway, you know, yeah, yeah. So that's that's his life. I was a punk and a twerp, and that's what what we did. But then he then he um, talks a little bit more about Trevor Horn, and like I mentioned, Trevor Horn had produced uh, "Yes Is Owner of a Lonely Heart" featuring Trevor Rabin as a songwriter and lead singer, and also had produced "Relax" and Two Tribes" by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which had already sold six million copies on twelve-inch singles, but before the album even came out. And honestly. Frankie Goes to Hollywood to me is those first three singles and the album. Um, not that I was like 
really in the demo, but I can remember friends of mine who were way into to the Frankie Goes to Hollywood singles being pretty let down by the album, and we didn't hear a lot about Frankie Goes to Hollywood after that. So, so a kind of a three-hit wonder um, package. But Trevor Horn was a keynote speaker at the New Music Seminar that year, which is fitting. And um, then he goes into the history of the New Music Seminar, which had been started in 1980 by um, Tom Silverman of Tommy Boy Records, who's going to you know, get rich and famous producing or just releasing Planet Rock by Africa Bambata, but also Mark Josephin, Josephson of Rockpool Magazine, which was not only a magazine for DJs, but it was also a DJ record pool. We talked about this in the Techno Rules series, where if you know, DJs need a lot of records to play them. They want them to be cheap or free. If you want DJs to play their records, you need to get them copies. And uh, this is, of course, back before digital distribution. But so they had what they called record pools, and DJs could sign up. And then the record companies would make sure the record pools had plenty of copies of the 12 inches they wanted out there to the DJs, and they would distribute them to the DJs. So there was a whole network of getting the DJs the latest and greatest club songs, and that was how it was done. A new musical seminar looked at the industry from the perspective of, of DJ. So pretty interesting, uh, pretty pivotal thing. And new music seminar ends up getting surpassed by South by Southwest in the 90s. But in the 80s, it was absolutely miles ahead, the number one music seminar in the business. Well, let's go ahead and hear a little bit of high energy. This is Saw's You Think You're a Man, as sung by Devon. And that was Divine singing You Think You're a Man, written and produced by Stock Aikman Waterman, a.k.a. Saw. And this is a song I first heard by the Vaselines, which is a band I first heard of when uh, Nirvana covered a couple of their songs, Jesus Don't Want Fruit for a Sunbeam, uh, on their Incesticide compilation. So I went out and bought the Vaselines album, and they had done a cover of Divine's You Think You're a Man. And I had no clue. I just thought, this is a little bit different from their other songs. So, <laughs> again, uh, apologies for being a corn dog, but you know that's 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 <laughs> what I am. The whole I was completely so what, oblivious. What was the demographic at this point? What by '84? What was the demographic for these clubs? It, it clearly was moving from white gay men, correct? Well, there were different clubs. There were clubs like Heaven in London and clubs in San Francisco and another club in New York that were totally aimed at white gay men. And they yeah, were back, big enough. Backstreet was too. Backstreet was in Atlanta originally as well. Exactly. Yeah. But then it changed. Yeah. And, 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 and so high energy basically stays in those kind of clubs. And then because of, of Saw turns pop and kind of has a parallel history I wouldn't want to say it stops being dance music. Well, 
by the time it's Kylie Minogue, it does stop being dance music. It's just pop, um, which is a yeah. totally normal evolution. But I was I was actually asking um, some dance authorities on Twitter uh, how that f- f- today how how high energy fit in with house. Uh, you know, and Electra and the other things going on. And basically that was the, the consensus was that it was for white gay guys and it didn't penetrate into the R&B market or the black dance clubs, not even the black gay dance clubs. And it definitely didn't penetrate into the rock oriented dance clubs that we're going to be talking about in a second. So it was kind of just a, a parallel direction, but massively influential. And also, as we talked about in the high energy episode on Techno Roll, this was the generation of people that were absolutely devastated by AIDS. So, um, you know, hats off, moment of silence in memory of so many people who died so young and and were so despised. I mean, the, the Reagan administration actively sabotaged attempts to diagnose and treat AIDS early on, and there was a huge amount of of hostility and hatred uh, for victims of AIDS up until, you know, Michael Jackson made, uh, I think the kid's name was Ryan White and, and other people who were a transfusion, who had gotten, gotten HIV through trans, blood transfusions. And eventually, um, and also because of the activism of groups like ACT UP and the AIDS quilt and other things, you know, gay, gay guys got together and fought uh, for their rights and their rights to be treated like human beings. So in the end, big progress socially, but at a heavy, heavy cost. So it always makes me sad to think about the high energy scene because it's so many young, promising, talented, beautiful people with a lot to contribute who got taken out uh, so young. But back to the matter at hand, now he starts talking about uh, what Matos starts talking about, uh, what he calls the post-punk diaspora and how rock discos start aiming for that. We've talked about this repeatedly, how punk didn't click in the States. New Wave kind of clicked briefly in the States. There's a period, 78, 79, 80, when groups like The Knack and Blondie and The Talking Heads get some radio play, but then that is taken away uh, by the mid-80s. And last week we talked about how X was still bitter about that. But what you did have was these dance clubs that were... um, aimed at rock audiences and the punk new wave connection was a big a big part of that but it also had things like the paradise garage which does feed directly into you know the modern edm tradition of of you know in britain they call it garage and and you know it's similar to house larry levan and frankie knuckles came up together uh, as djs but larry stayed in new york ran the paradise garage which was totally dominant in this period and it was influencing pop production that the the metronomic rhythms of the drum machines and the big echoes uh because that's how it sounded in in the paradise garage massive sound system in that club and and rock producers were hearing that and and started um copying it and and you also had produced uh Radio DJs like Frankie Cock- Crocker of WBLS, which was the number one black radio station in New York at the time, he was hanging out in Larry LeVan's uh, DJ booth at the Paradise Garage and and watching out for what he's going to play. And that's where songs like "Let the Music Play" uh, by Shannon first start come in. But then he also talks about other clubs in New York, like Haraz, which was the first New York City club to embrace the quote post-disco hybrid of post-punk 
dance ethos and combine it with giant video screens, which were soon followed by the Mud Club. Uh, Heaven and, and other gay clubs picked up on that quickly. Then he talks about Dance Interior, which was, he calls the video, the Ur Video Club. And it had and just a mega experience, like pretty much like the club you were talking about in Atlanta, except not aimed at a gay audience, especially. But it had a concert room for live bands. I know the Butthole Surfers played a legendarily infamous show there, and I want to say 86, maybe it was 87. But you also had a video lounge, then you had a dance floor. Then you had a private lounge for private parties and dance interior became, I mean, I wasn't even into dance music, but I had heard of dance interior and fantasized about going there. Like, you know, had that kind of cachet that even uh, a hick in Borger, Texas, um, who, you know, has two left feet and doesn't know high energy from freestyle to save his life is, is hearing about dance interior and curious about going there. And they, they quote Arthur Baker, the co-producer of Planet Rock is saying that that Dance Interior had that rock element, and he he re- remixed a lot of rock records and tested them on that dance floor. So he's doing remixes for people like Cindy Lauper, and Bruce Springsteen's infamous Dancing in the Dark, and uh, you know it's it hitting the radio. So were you um, at these rock discos? Were you hearing a lot of Bruce and Cindy Lauper in the mix as well? I would, you know what, I would back and see Cindy Lauper. Um, I don't think Bruce's album had come out, um, Born in the USA had come out yet when I was at that. Well, yes, it had. It had. The only place I ever heard Dance in the Dark remix with Max Weinberg's drumming turned into a kind of a disco cascade with Gated and all that was on the radio in Columbus, Georgia. It just was the strangest experience. But I will tell you this. Um when Springsteen was in Atlanta at the end of the year on that tour, on the beginning of that tour for um, Born in the USA, that he showed up. I mean, it was in the, you know, in the people section or the gossip section that he went dancing one night. And it, that first video is him dancing with Courtney Cox at the end. Yeah. You know, that, there was, a, but it was, it was like a parallel universe. So it was like this, this, and, and my rock head, just kind of watched it go by, but you know they told. I knew I knew that Bruce, you know the newly buff Bruce with his headband and everything, went out to the one of the clubs in Atlanta, the the famous more main more mainstream club, and I use those quotes um, was called Limelight in Atlanta. That was kind of the one that came after Backstreet, and Backstreet survived way longer than the Limelight, but that was the one that. The, the one that I think is more like Danceteria. I see, I see. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about radio's relationship to dance music in 1984. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So this chapter is another example of the way Matos is so skilled at weaving together a lot of narrative threads. And several figures that we've already talked about from the first chapter on radio have come back. Like we talked about Trevor Horn. He's back. We talked about Tom Silverman before. He's back. And now we're going to talk about Larry Berger of WPLJ. He's the guy uh, at the beginning of the book who uh, turned his album-oriented rock station into a contemporary hit station. And, and the slogan was the future of pop radio. But he admitted at an a NMS seminar session that year that, quote, we don't break a lot of records. And he, the way he expressed it is, you know, we want to play popular records that are already hits. We don't want to be forcing things down people's throats. But it just uh, speaks to the conservatism that was was already creeping into what at the time was pop radio's most adventurous format, the, the contemporary hit radio. And and one of the reasons why 1984 is kind of an outlier and by 85, 86, 87, you're getting diminishing returns um, in the pop scene. You still have a lot of cool things going on in the underground scenes and hip hop and metal and punk and in dance and country for that matter but the pop radio uh definitely pinnacles in 1984 because we have this brief window and the formats are a little bit open to new things and not yet completely ossified he also quotes ken barnes of radio and records which is another radio tip sheet who was grumbling at the lack of outsider of quote unquote outsiders participating in the radio panels like basically new musical new music seminar was full of DJs and dance producers who constantly grumbled about not getting on the radio, and Kim Barnes was mad that they weren't on his panel so they could have the debate right there. Maybe it was a missed opportunity. Hard to say. 
<laughs> but and then and then they talk about another famous club at the time, the Fun House. And this um, he references Arthur Baker again because there's a famous video for uh, New Order's Confusion, which shows Arthur Baker and New Order bringing their new 12-inch single to the famous DJ Jellybean Benitez to test at the Fun House. And, and then he goes into the whole thing about Blue New Order before he goes back to talk about Jellybean. New Order is the group that uh, rose from the ashes of Joy Division. Joy Division, of course, one of the leading uh, post-punk bands of 78, 79, 80, ended when their leader, Ian Curtis, hung himself on the eve of their what would have been their first American tour. But the rest of the band, uh, Bernard Sumner, who was going by Albrecht uh, for some reason at this point, uh, also Peter Hook and Stephen Morris, the original uh, rhythm section of, of Joy Division, joined by uh, Sumner's girlfriend, Gillian Gilbert, on keyboards. They reform as New Order. Keeping a perfect record of fascist-aligned names, Story Division having been named for a Nazi-enforced uh, prostitution unit, and New Order being uh, Hitler's whole agenda. So I don't know what to make of that necessarily. I think it was just bad taste, but um, you know maybe they're fascist. I don't know. But New Order is is kind of the definitive one of the definitive British dance synth dance bands, synth pop bands. And it talks about uh, the spring 1983 release of Blue Monday, which is one of the definitive singles of the era, came out at the same time as their Power, Corruption, and Lies album. Of course, they did that British thing of not putting the hit single on the album. I can remember being really mad when I bought Power, Corruption, and Lies and it didn't have Blue Monday on it. As I recall, it didn't have any song listing on the sleeve, um, but I had heard new, uh, Blue Monday both on the radio and in the record store and I believe even the clerk steered me to power corruption and lies. But anyway, the perfectly good album. It just didn't have the money on it. But but it, uh, Matos calls it the British Planet Rock, and and notes that it was the best selling twelve inch in history. But that the band lost money on every copy because the packaging was so elaborate. And by the time they figured out they were losing money on it, on every single copy, they'd already uh, sold two hundred fifty thousand copies. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and and we've talked about factory records before on that role, and and not not one of the most a brilliant record label, but made some really bad business decisions, and that's right up their alley. They also co-founded the Hacienda Club in Manchester, based on Danceteria. And Steph, do you want to jump in and talk about New Order, Blunt, Blue Monday, and Confusion? Oh sure, I, I was just going to note that. That's an excellent comparison that uh, Matos made there to calling it uh, the Planet Rock. That's a great comparison. As far as Blue Monday, again, it's another one of those songs with staying power. Ditto for confusion. The staying power of of Blue Monday. When I first heard that, again, I, I heard it on the radio. I was a kid. When I learned to appreciate it was several years later in a club. Again, with a fake ID, but it had staying power four or five years later. It was still being bumped in the club like it was brand new. Same thing with Confusion. Now, with Blue Monday, it was so popular that like 15 years later, it got remade. And that one charted again when Orgy remade it. I like the New Order version better. But blue, uh, but uh, orgy did a good job with theirs. Confusion is the best one, though. 
Confusion by far is their best work, I think. The crescendo in it, it's just incredible. It takes 40 seconds to build to it. And then when it hits, it goes on for like two minutes. It's insane. I loved it. Can't get any better than than that. I I picked um, Blue Monday because I can't stand the con- the singing on Confusion. It just drives me crazy. <laughs> People can't sing, and they really showed their ass, in my opinion, on the vocals on that one. Yeah. But um, let's go ahead and hear uh, New Order's Blue Monday. And that was New Order's Blue Monday, the English Planet Rock. And you got any New Order stories to throw into the mix? Just, just that I never, I did not know for the longest time that New Order had anything to do with Joy Division or vice versa. I mean, I was completely clueless. And but, that they, but you'd heard of both? Death. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, what, and I, I mean, I remember it. There's got, there was a video for one of these songs, and I can't remember which one it was, but I remember seeing it and and being surprised that it was English white guys. What were you expecting? I don't well I just it was it was a good dance tune. So you thought it would be some American black people? Yes. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> More likely. But I mean that that's probably paying myself a compliment. I mean that you know, I'm you a lot of this is really over my head because um you know, I was, I was, I, I learned so much from, from a uh, techno role, how, how this culture just turned into something that, that just kept going and growing and nobody ever, you know, called up the rock drummer and asked him if it was okay. <laughs> they didn't ask you permission. Yeah, they weren't no, asking my and, either. <laughs> and I was just, I'm so, tra- I just, uh, the, the whole time thinking about this chapter this week, I just keep thinking about how um, how it had become so much about going to hear a band and just standing there or sitting there, and that dancing was just not part of the equation. And how many of my friends? I mean, yes, the bands that I played in, we played. I think we had the one that I was in in tenth grade. We had six gigs, and I think um, probably four of them were for dances. And then the other ones were just people kind of hanging out drinking, but, um, but it just was, it did not compute that, that this was a good idea that, that maybe I should think about, I, I did know this, that, that women didn't tended to like to go out and dance. They did, didn't really want to go just stand there and stare at a band on a bandstand. Yeah, yeah. And that was why we knew they weren't as cool as, as dudes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you're you're re- you're reading my mind at age nineteen, and obviously there wasn't a lot going on up there. Yeah, that's that's where I was too, completely wrong headed, and and Elijah Me Walter, too. the 
first interviews I did in the Let It Roll series, his excellent book, How the Beatles Killed Rock and Roll, really goes into that and how the Beatles had started out as a dance band and were a dance band all the way up pretty much until Rubber Soul made a conscious decision to go in a folk rock and then the psychedelic rock di direction. And but by the time of Sgt. Pepper's, nobody's dancing to the Beatles. They're very much listening music, sit down and listen. And rock and roll just followed their lead and abdicated the dance floors. And part of that is the technology. I mean, it became so much cheaper to hire a DJ to play records for people to dance to. And the Beatles were pioneers of going to discos to dance and listen to records. But when they started doing that, their records and the Rolling Stones and the Animals and, and their peers, along with Booker T and the MGs and James Brown and lots of American R&B, that's what was being danced to. They liked to dance, but somehow when they got into the art rock direction, they just left it behind and and rock and roll you know, followed that and disco just completely took the the torch of of dance music and and rock and roll never got it back. It made a couple attempts um, with the Manchester sound in the late 80s as a response to Acid House, but that's pretty much it. I, other than bands like New Order that, that basically became dance bands rather than... Yes, exactly. They weren't, the, they didn't, I didn't think of them as a dance band, um, you know, because of, because of Joy Division, but in, think of, think of what, what was the Cavern Club? A noon, it was a noon rave basically yeah. i mean why was it why was it sweaty why was it nasty why was it everything it was it was a dance club yep yep and 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 you know rock and roll uh just 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 abandoned the dance audience jazz yeah. had done it before jazz did the very same thing when when swing turned into bebop people like charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and thelonious funk they were so into hey y'all listen to what we're laying down and you know, abandon the dance force to people like Louis Jordan. And so this this is something that happens in music history over and over again. But let's let's get back to the dance music, and, sure. and we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about the um, freestyle. The king of freestyle at the time is is Jellybean Benitez, who's one of the first superstar DJs to become a superstar uh, record remixer and producer. Part of this is because of his relationship with a young woman named Madonna, who becomes famous around this time. He remixes Holiday for her. It makes number 16 on the chart. Then he remixes Lucky Star and Borderline. They go top 10. And in no time at all, Jelly Bean and Madonna are no longer an item. <laughs> like, they're a couple. <laughs> they get famous together. And he was famous first. From April 1981 to June 1984, he's the DJ at the Fun House, which is one of the top... Um, dance clubs in new york city he had already he'd already uh, dj'd at hurrah and studio 54 and then um goes to the fun house and and evolves the sound and and you know madonna i think madonna actually had a different celebrity dj boyfriend when she signed uh to sire when seymour signed seymour stein from his hospital bed signs her going over the head of Mo Austin, the head of Warner Brothers, who did not want to give Seymour Stein the money to sign Madonna and, and Seymour's autobiography. He talks about how he cut some deal with, I think, Nehushi Erdogan, uh, Ahmet Erdogan's brother, who was running a British division of, of, uh, of Warner Brothers at that time and had to cut some backroom deal to sign Madonna. So 
the great Mo Austin had an off day when he when he turned that down. Unfortunately, Seymour Stein didn't listen because Madonna's going to go on to basically carry Warner Brothers uh, or go a long way towards carrying them for the next five, six, shit, ten years, ten, fifteen years. So, um, yeah, an, an interesting mix. Now, now, had Madonna crossed your radar at all this summer? Yes. Yes, yeah, absolutely, because um, I I was hearing her more in Macon, Georgia, where I had a lady friend and was going on the weekends and on the way. I just remember so many times um, on the way back hearing those early songs that you just mentioned. Um, and, you know, that was the only choice. I There was not a rock station in Macon. There wasn't in Columbus, Georgia, either. And um, so that was I just remember hearing them i didn't start liking her until material world but i'm getting ahead of things so um but i but i certainly knew about her and, and that video of like a virgin was you know impossible not to see once i had mtv yeah it's it's it was uh, colossal and I, I made the same mistake i i remember thinking of i remember hearing holiday and i remember hearing it I think for the first time, the same road trip that I heard um, when Doves Cry for the first time. And I can remember going on and on to my brother about how great when Doves Cry was. He was uh, roughly 30 and completely disinterested. I was 13, madly in love with Prince, instant love with with Prince. Um, although I think I'd heard Little Red Corvette the summer before and liked it okay but but when doves cry was so obviously different but holiday was my counter example i was like and this chick's obviously a no talent one hit wonder <laughs> so i was totally wrong and i and i kept developing that theory and expanded on it how cindy lopper was going to run her into the ground and cindy lopper was the real talent and madonna's nothing and cindy lopper's going to last and have hit after hit after hit and you know cindy lopper's great but she pretty much had the one hit record and that was it and madonna of course goes on to become madonna so i couldn't have been more yep. wrong <laughs> I well and i I, I bought i bought cindy lopper's album i didn't buy a madonna album ever and never thought about it at least then yeah, I, I oh. stole like a prayer from a later girlfriend. Um, but there you go. That, yeah, but uh, yeah, I didn't even. Material Girls obviously much oh, impressed me as, as a good album, but I still didn't even imagine buying the album. But again, I had a girlfriend who, who had it so I could hear it all I wanted to. And it was on the radio and, and videos all the time anyway. But right. um, yeah. So anyway, I was just, I was, I was, I was like Mo Austin. I was wrong about Madonna <laughs> all the way, and and oblivious to Jellybean. I had no idea the dude existed. I had no idea what freestyle was at all for many, many years. But then, Mata um, segues from there into another city that's going to make a big impact in um, dance music in 1984. And let's go ahead and hear our next song and, and then we'll introduce Chicago and the sound that's coming out of Chicago in the time. And this is Lenoise, Wanna Dance.
And that was "Want to Dance" by the Noise, and the answer is certainly as I sample Curly uh, Howard from the Three Stooges, and and that to me really sums up the difference between house music and high energy and freestyle, and and also British synth pop is you can just tell this is teenage kids who got their hands on some cheap ass drum machines and synthesizers and are ripping it up and having fun. And the sound is raw. It's not compressed. It's not cleaned up. It's just raw and funky and wild. And it's going to go on to revolutionize the world. But in July, 1984, it's still pretty much contained to the clubs in Chicago. Of course, Frankie Knuckles was working at the warehouse he might have already moved on from the warehouse at that point, but he started out at the warehouse. That's where the name House Music came. It basically initially meant whatever Frankie Knuckles is playing. If you listen to old tapes of Frankie Knuckles shows from the early 80s, pretty much just a disco producer and, and or DJ, and you'll hear things like Stevie Wonder mixed in there. And It's not what you think of uh, when you think of full-blown house, but he was making what they called house music before uh, – the producers invented the genre and this is something that's going to happen again and again a few more times but matos uses the uh consumer electronics conference that happened in chicago that year to introduce and make that segue and then he kind of goes through a whole history of of chicago dance music and compressed history and he talks about la mer vipere which was the first rock disco it opened in Chicago in 1978. So um, the first clubs playing rock music with the modern disco sound system. So like when the Beatles were hearing rock music and discos in the 60s, you're talking about really tinny little AM radio type sound systems. You didn't have the full-blown 70s disco sound system uh, until the 70s. And Lemire Viper is one of the first to combine that kind of sound system with rock music. And he also shouts out Wax Tracks, which was a, originally a record store in Denver. Then they expanded to a record store in Chicago. Then they became a record label, initially a punk record label, but they really made their mark uh, with Ministry's Cold Life uh, single in 1982, sold 10,000 copies right out the gate, which is really good for a self-release 12-inch. Uh, Ministry later signs with Arista. It goes on to, um, you know, pioneer... I, I, popularized industrial music, I think would be the way to say it with their late 80s stuff like Land of Rape and Honey. Um, and then uh, Wax Tracks also signed Front 242 out of Belgium. So, um, you know, uh, a big part of the merger of rock and dance music going on in Chicago coming out of Wax Tracks. And there was also Medusas, which was a teen disco on North Sheffield. Opened by Dave Shelton in 1983, he got the nickname Medusa because of his long shocks of blonde hair. Front 242 makes her U.S. debut there at Medusa's in 1984, a week after Ministry had played there. They had a video room on the third floor. And another thing that Matos dropped that I didn't know before this was that there were multiple UHF channels. And if, if you're old enough to remember UHF, there was there was two kind of TV frequencies. And UHF what tended to be kind of the left of the dial or the local independent stations if you were in a big city. If you're lucky enough to be in a place that had some UHF channels – 
you get some weird, crazy stuff. And there were multiple UHF channels that went all video in Chicago, which drove sales of Cindy Lauper and Billy Joel in the black neighborhoods. And it's interesting. I just got a, a piece of fan mail today from, or yesterday from a listener. And he's a, a black dude who was a big Michael Jackson fan. And he said that one of the byproducts of MTV playing Michael Jackson and Prince was that opened his eyes to white music that for him, he described it Cindy Lauper as flyover country prior to that. Like he'd heard of her, but he didn't pay any attention to her. But suddenly when he's paying attention to MTV, cause he wants to watch Michael Jackson and Prince, then he starts uh, checking out Cindy Lauper and, and the fix and ZZ top and others. And, and, the same thing is going in on Chicago because uh, even for neighborhoods that don't have cable, they've got UHF channels covering video. And I found that to be totally fascinating. Now, you went to pretty much majority black high school. Did you see any of that kind of crossover? I mean, what was the – how many of black folks that you knew were into white music at all and did that increase through the 80s? Well, you know, well, I, I see, and I was there. I graduated in 78. My brother graduated from the same school in 81 though. And I knew, still knew some kids and it was still, there was still some segregation, but at the same time, really the early seventies was when, um, when in like my middle school years is when I remember. And that's when the hit radio, you were still hearing, um, Stevie wonder as much as Elton John on, um, that's in 73. Um, and, the whole time I'm I'm li- listening to you and thinking about it, um, in Atlanta the UHF stations are Channel 17 and Channel 36, and then this this was probably no early no later than 1970. Both of those stations had a Saturday afternoon, and they didn't have videos, but they just had um, people dance like bodies just like the the silhouette of a body with a psychedelic light show going on TV huh. for a couple hours. One was called um, Now Explosion, and the other one, I can't remember what the other one's called, but Channel 17 um, is not really famous for this, but Channel 17, the UHS station in Atlanta, is what Ted Turner turned into TBS. Yeah, famously, I mean, famously. And he... He and he would when he first in those days he would come on and do a commercial showing you how to put a turn a coat hanger into a better UHF um, antenna. That's classic. Ted himself. You, you know, one of the other big cable channels when I first got cable, uh, uh, TBS was one of the big ones, but uh, Chicago's WGN was yeah. too. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if they were UHF as well. Um, I bet but, they were. I yeah. bet you're right. Um, but yeah, classic classic cable channels of the '80s. But anyway, back to back to the house music. And so he talks about um, uh, Vince Lawrence, who's a, a young black uh, kid who's a New Order fan, and um, produces a song under the name Z Factor. Produces Fast Cars in 1983. He's a Frankie Knuckles acolyte. He's dancing at the warehouse, and and. Uh, that was the song that made uh, an impression, but it's not considered house music yet. It wasn't until Jesse Saunders produces On and On um, that, that for whatever reason, that is considered the first house music record, even though house music was already being played 
by Frankie Knuckles, like the way Frankie Knuckles remixed disco and Euro disco and electronic dance album records and, and including British New Wave. He was making it house music, but it wasn't until Jesse Saunders produces on and on that you get that same effect on record. Because Frankie Knuckles had a drum machine that he would play along with the records. And Ron Hardy, who was his big rival across town, was also doing the same thing. And then guys like Farley Keith uh, and the Hot Mix 5 were doing it on the radio in Chicago. But eventually, um, Jesse Saunders makes On and On. And, and that was even a remix of a record by a group called The Chosen Few, which was uh, headed up by Wayne Williams, who later goes on to become R. Kelly's A&R man. And there's a great quote Matos has from Marshall Jefferson, who's a, yet another early house producer, who calls On and On, quote, the single most important record of the 20th century, because it let the non-musician know he could make music. And I think that's that's the moral of the story of House. I would obviously quibble with him about the most important record of the of the 20th century. I think maybe the most important record of the 1980s, but, you know... <laughs> That, that, that's a quibble. Like, there's all kinds of Louis Armstrong records or uh, Duke Ellington records or Bing Crosby records, that I, you know, Elvis Presley records, Chuck Berry records that I would argue, um, Little Richard records I would argue were more important for the whole century. But I think Marshall Jefferson was definitely on to something because as cool and funky as – you know, high energy was and and as as the British synth pop was, it really wasn't until the tech got cheap enough to fall into the hands of black teenagers making records in their apartments that Chef really hit the fan and really went crazy. And um, one last story before we got to go, because uh, we got to talk about Larry Sherman and Trax Records, who's just one of the great record company grifters of all time. <laughs> like the guy, the guy owned the only pressing plant in Chicago. That, and so these kids start bringing these records in. As soon as he notices that they're selling, he forms a record company, quote unquote, partners with these kids, cuts all the most exploitative deals, and is famous for melting down old copies of the Bee Gees, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. <laughs> Yeah. and making new records so that sometimes you'd get chunks of the label of the Sgt. Pepper's album in your uh, tracks record tracks but not, <laughs> not just just classic stuff and the last bit he talks about is uh, this epic panel they had at the New Music Seminar get this lineup they had Africa Bambata, James Brown George Clinton, Joe Ely from Austin kind of uh, uh, an outlier there um, you've got Robert Gohl of DAF, the German dance band. You've got Nona Hendrix. You've got uh, Andy Cody Monday Hernandez of Kid Creole and the Coconuts, which was a band that was definitely being pushed and hyped, never quite made it through. Deborah Eall of Romeo Void, which had a hit single at the time. You had Madonna. You had John Oates of Hollow Notes. You had Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground, who at this point in time is in a deep career lull. He's about to have a comeback in a couple of years. Um, you got Fred Schneider of the B-52s and Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles Band. And uh, just classic tales uh, here. Uh, George Clinton baits James Brown into a splits contest and then beats him <laughs> at it. Um, and, uh, you know, then they talk about how, how James Brown had segued into, or they, Matos talks about how he had segued. Basically, he had 
aged out of the chitlin circuit of the r&b circuit and started working these rock dance clubs and first avenue in minneapolis was one of the places where he went he went over great with the fans the club owners hated him because he extorted the thousand dollars cash out of him while the crowd was yelling for him to go on <laughs> but you know those are the lessons you learn on the on the chitlin circuit and then he talks about the unity album that uh bambata and james brown did together and then he talks a little bit about Bambada as an eclectic hip-hop DJ. We've covered that. This is the guy who introduced the Monkees, Mary Mary, uh, Kraftwerk's Autobahn, Aerosmith's Walk This Way, The Beatles. So many songs he introduced into the hip-hop lexicon, as well as you know being a master of Sly Stone and James Brown and, and all that. Um, but then his next, comp- next collaboration... Uh, is World Destruction, where he worked with producer Bill Laswell, and he wanted the singer from Def Leppard, but Laswell suggested Johnny Rotten, and the rest is history. Um, and, and also mentions, Matos also mentions that uh, George Clinton had one of his last hits with Atomic Dog in 1982. And then he works in Peter Wolf's Lights Out album, which was his first solo album after leaving the Jake Giles band. Produced by Michael Johnson, who's the brother of Maurice Starr, who goes on to produce New Edition. Had you noticed Peter Whoops' whole segue to dance-oriented music? I did not. <laughs> was it, well, was it, what, you know what, was it dance? I mean, dance I, I love loved Jay, Jay Giles' band. I mean, like, they're one of my favorite bands of, of the 70s. And, and then they... What did you think I mean, of Freeze Frame? I bought it and did not like it. So I, I didn't like it that much. The way that, that Hammond organ, uh, that howling, I, I mean, I like that single, but I was just sucked in by the single. And, you know, I'm I'm an old Jay Giles. I've become an old Jay Giles appreciator because they were, so I saw them in 76, like a month before my Freebird yelling uh, moment with Skinner. And they were one of the best bands I'd seen. Uh, I've heard that. The same, they were just they just killed it, and I think Peter Wolf. I it kills me that, and I mean I'm a I'm a bearded dude, so I would it just he's he just they all look so cool in the in those days, you know, and it they look they kind of look like gangsters, white gangsters, and um, so but I mean what an incredible group, including who I wonder who said bullshit to James Brown though. I'd love to know who said that because. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have. There wouldn't be music that they enjoyed if James Brown hadn't come along. And it, I would. All I would do if I saw James Brown at this point, at least, would be to bow. Yeah, I think it might have been Prince who uh, saw him at First Avenue and said he was washed up. Um, oh God, and, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, I. If anybody's going to kill the king, it's going to be Prince. I mean, that's just a classic. Well, that's true. You know, that's just a classic sort of uh, Mike Tyson beating up Larry Holmes kind of <laughs> kind of true. moment, you know. The, you feed the old lions to the young lions, and, and that's that's, and that's what happens. And that's what. What did happens. you think but, of free, What did you think of Freeze Frame? What did you? I think loved of? the video. It was, uh, you know, this is yeah. days when when I would get the Sears catalog, and it would be a, a sacred moment in my adolescence. So, so the dirty <laughs> video of Freeze Frame was something I've looked forward to. That and Girls on Film by Duran Duran, uh, neither of which I saw as much as I wanted to. But I, I then I bought the album, and I, I 
again, I didn't like the album very much, and I was oblivious to the to the previous to the '70s stuff of Jake Isles being so. I was oblivious, but that's pretty much it for this episode of 80s Roll for Ed Legg. I'm Nate Wilcox, and we'll be back next week to continue our discussions of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And next week, we're going to the Olympics, and we're going to be discussing the dreaded slash wonderful Lionel Richie Kenny Rogers connection. So that ought to be fun. The, the, the 80s are not just hip cool dance music and great hip-hop and punk rock it's also the year of lionel rich and kenny rogers so we'll be diving into that next week follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com thursday nate welcomes kim mack to talk about living color let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.